we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Krikorian, Executive Director of the Center. And this week in the podcast, we're going to play for you the presentations or the discussion from a recent panel discussion we did on the various lawsuits against the administration related to immigration. Remember, under Trump, there was uh, one lawsuit after another filed against the administration. And under Biden, there's something similar. I I frankly think most of the lawsuits have more grounding and are more legitimate, but the fact that they're there is still there. And so we have several people, one of our staff members, as well as a couple of outside people with a lot of experience in this talk about it. The first, Art Arthur, is resident fellow in law and policy at the Center for Immigration Studies and has written extensively about the litigation against the Biden administration and before that against the Trump administration in the area of immigration. So let's hear what he has to say. If you could give us kind of the Cliff Notes version of the most recent and most widely covered one is the so-called Remain in Mexico ruling from the Supreme Court. What's at issue there? What did the court find? And what might we see? Will it come back next year to face the court? What are the other questions? So just to provide some timeline to put all this into context, in January 2019, we were seeing a huge influx of migrants coming across the southwest border. In fact, in March of 2019, DHS Secretary Kirsten Nielsen announced a border emergency. Just before she did that in January of 2019, taking statutory authority in Section 235B2C of the INA, which I'm just going to call the contiguous territory return provision, she instituted the Migrant Protection Protocols, MPP, better known as Remain in Mexico. 235B2C and MPP both allow DHS to return migrants apprehended at the southwest border who are claiming asylum who are not from Mexico back across the border to Mexico to await their removal hearings. By midsummer 2019, again, it was briefly enjoined by the courts in California, I believe. But by midsummer of 2019, MPP was fully implemented. In October 2019, DHS determined that MPP was, quote, an indispensable tool in addressing the ongoing crisis at the southern border and restoring integrity to the immigration system, close quote. Throughout the lifetime of MPP, about 70,000 migrants were returned back to Mexico under the program, most of them before March 2020. In March 2020, the pandemic was declared, international travel shut down, fewer people were entering the United States illegally, and CDC issued Title 42 orders that we'll talk about in a little bit that allowed DHS to simply expel illegal migrants, in fact, direct DHS to expel illegal migrants coming into the United States. Nonetheless, in the 2020 presidential campaign, 
MPP became one of Joe Biden's hobby horses. He railed against the program. He vowed that he was going to end it as president. January 20th, 2021, his first day as president, Biden actually did that. He suspended new enrollments in MPP in the next month. DHS started allowing people who had been in MPP to come into the United States so that they could have their hearings here. That, coupled with the growing crisis at the border in April of 2021, prompted Texas and Missouri to file suit in federal court in Texas, arguing that the migrant crisis was increasing, MPP was necessary to keep the number of migrants low. Because the greater number of migrants, the greater number of people who would be coming into their states, who would be using state benefits, and who would be a burden on the state, were coming to their states. Notwithstanding the fact that they'd filed the suit in April, on June 1st, 2021, DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas issued a memo terminating MPP, which, of course, just got rolled into the suit that they were doing. And they were arguing, look, this is a violation of the Administrative Procedures Act. It didn't go through notice and comment rulemaking. It's arbitrary and capricious, and it's in violation of the Immigration and Nationality Act. On August 13, 2021, Judge Matthew Kaczmarek of the Northern District of Texas agreed in largely with the states, and he enjoined DHS's termination of MPP. And he did it based on three findings. One, DHS is required under Section 235B of the INA to detain every illegal migrant and every arriving alien that shows up in the United States during the argument in the MPP case. We found out that goes all the way back to 1903. So that's a pretty old law. But that is the detention mandate. Two, DHS is allowed to release some of those aliens on a very limited authority called parole. But DHS was really just releasing large numbers of aliens into the United States. The third option Judge Kaczmarek found that they had was to send those aliens that it couldn't detain and that it shouldn't be releasing back across the border to Mexico to await their hearings. And so DHS couldn't take Remain in Mexico off of the table. Biden administration quickly ran to the Fifth Circuit for a stay. That was denied. They went to the Supreme Court for a stay, and that was denied. The Biden administration appealed it in the Fifth Circuit in order to overturn Judge Kaczmarek's order. On October the 29th, 2021, which was four days before oral argument before the Fifth Circuit, Alejandro Mayorkas rescinded his prior uh, termination memo and issued a brand new one that said, oh, you know, this is the real reason that we're terminating MPP. That didn't make the Fifth Circuit very happy because, you know, the Biden administration ran into court saying, well, now the old one's moot. We changed the rules. You don't have to worry about it. This is really the law. And the Fifth Circuit said, forget that. It's really just one termination decision. It doesn't matter which memos you use to do it. So we're going to just simply focus on the June 1 memo and we'll consider the October 29th memo as well. On December the 13th, 2021, the Fifth Circuit dismissed DHS's appeal. That prompted the Biden administration to go to the Supreme Court. And in February, the Supreme Court agreed to take up the case, which was now captioned Biden versus Texas. At issue in Biden versus Texas were whether that detention mandate in Section 235B of the INA is actually a detention mandate, whether the contiguous territory return, again, the statutory basis for MPP, imposed an obligation on DHS to return aliens that it couldn't detain back to Mexico, 
whether the Biden administration is properly releasing migrants into the United States on parole. To give you an idea, the parole provision states that DHS is allowed to permit inadmissible aliens to come into the United States, but, quote, only on a case-by-case basis for urgent humanitarian reasons or significant public benefit, close quote. This very tight standard. It's not a new one. It goes all the way back to the 1952 Act as revised in 1996 to actually tighten it up. There's never been as broad an application of that rule as under the Biden administration. Under the Biden administration, 1,050,000 more or less illegal migrants and other inadmissible aliens at the southwest border have been released into the United States. 1,050,000. Plainly, tough to do on a case-by-case basis and tough to say that any of that is a significant public benefit. The Biden administration, however, argues that it has to release all those aliens that it can't detain, and it's actually a significant public benefit to release them rather than detain them, because that means that somebody who's even worse may show up, although ICE detention space is about 30% empty. So, and again, the government was actually questioned extensively about this at the oral argument. Another question before the court is whether the jurisdiction, this is an important one that we're going to get much deeper into, whether a jurisdiction stripping provision in Section 242 of the Immigration Nationality Act barred any consideration of this case. When Congress changed the law in 1996, they limited the availability of injunctive relief by any court other than the Supreme Court. So district courts, you know, didn't have the ability to enjoin or restrain certain actions under the INA, and the circuit courts couldn't do it either. So when Secretary Cuccinelli was talking before about all those lawsuits, plainly, probably in violation of 242F, but it had always been accepted that, well, you know, it says that, but it doesn't really mean it. Finally, the last question before the Supreme Court was whether the circuit court had properly lumped that October 29th memo in with the June 1 memo and finding that it was just one termination decision. The court heard oral argument, and then it asked a lot about that jurisdiction stripping provision. Interestingly, the government hardly mentioned it. It mentioned it in a footnote in a rather extensive brief. Texas and Missouri didn't even respond in their briefs to it. And during argument, the justices kept asking about this, and neither side really had an answer. So on May the 2nd, after oral argument, the Supreme Court said, you know what, we want briefing on this issue, and we're going to give you a week to uh, get those briefs in. So with a week's briefing, they then turned around and issued their decision. They held that that contiguous return provision in Section 235B2C of the INA is discretionary, and that it can't be made mandatory even if DHS is violating the law. Two, it found that the October 29th termination was a new and judicially reviewable final agency action that the circuit court should have considered. Finally, something that Secretary Cuccinelli probably would have liked, it found that that jurisdiction stripping provision in Section 242F1 of the INA actually did strip jurisdiction to issue injunctive relief. The outcome of this is probably not that significant as a matter of fact. Only about 5,000 people returned back to Mexico under the Biden administration. Title 42, which we're going to discuss, is a much bigger issue. But 
The case will now go back to the Fifth Circuit to consider that October 29th memo, and as we'll probably get into a little bit more deeply, it's really unclear from the court's decision what the Fifth Circuit's going to be able to do once it gets to that point because of that jurisdiction stripping provision. But with that, I'll yield back. The second speaker, Ken Cuccinelli, was Virginia Attorney General, but more relevant to this discussion is that he was acting head of U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services within Homeland Security, and then later Deputy Director of the whole Department of Homeland Security in the Trump administration, and so was at the receiving end of a lot of lawsuits and is in a good position to talk about this. So let's listen to him. I wanted to go to Ken next to talk a little bit about the Title 42 case, the Cliff Notes version of what the lawsuit is, where it is now. As Art mentioned, the court ordering this administration to keep up a very effective program meant it was done somewhere well below half-heartedly. But Title 42, as he also mentioned, is numerically extremely significant. Title 42 is a public health title. Title 18 is criminal. Title 42 is public health. Title 8 is where you find immigration law. This is not immigration law. This is public health law. And it's important to realize that people are removed from this country using something other than immigration law. The two legal bases exist in the same place along the border and have completely different legal sources. When we say Title 42, we're referring to the border public health order that was issued in March of 2020 at the beginning of the COVID pandemic by Centers for Disease Control that provided for the turning around really with no process like we're used to in the immigration context back across the border of those who came in in between ports of entry illegally, which is a double negative. They, uh, that, that's how that goes. This is critically significant because as bad as the numbers are today, Even today, and I think a lot of people on the rule of law side of this debate aren't aware of these numbers, we are still removing over 50% of illegal border crossers every day under Title 42. So when you hear about the possibility of numbers going up and they continue to go up, the fastest way for them to go up is for Title 42 to come down because overnight they'll more than double. And when I say they will more than double, I'm referring to the releases into the United States. The catch and release numbers will go through the roof if Title 42 comes down. And um, Louisiana is the named party against the CDC in this case. And it is not, as I said, under immigration law, but again, you hear a lot of the same themes, the APA, the Administrative Procedure Act. So the claims by the states are that there was not appropriate notice and comment and that the action is arbitrary and capricious. Taking those two in turn, the government acknowledged that notice and comment would normally apply, but they gave a number of reasons why it wasn't done here. The first is the foreign affairs considerations, which we also heard about in the Remain in Mexico program. The courts are loath to interfere with the executive branch's ability to conduct international relations. And any of these things going on at the border have international consequences, and so the government argues that factor. But much like the jurisdictional briefing, the government 
made little more than about a sentence of argument on this front. They just threw it out very generically for the court. Now, it is it is historically been an important consideration for the court. So if I were writing their briefs, I would have been much more vigorous in pressing this point than they were. And then they also argued that there is a good cause exception and that their takedown of Title 42 fits within the good cause exception. They said it was the good cause is made up by the impracticality of taking public comment and that DHS needs time for implementing the takedown of Title 42. So they want to hurry because they need time to take down Title 42. You don't need to go to law school to see the inconsistency in some of that argument. I would note, as did the states, that when Title 42 was initially implemented, there are a variety of timing sets that rules can be implemented on. It was implemented on something like an emergency timeline, and yet public notice and comment was taken after the rule was implemented in March of 2020, before the rule was finalized, I want to say about two months later. So they can't point back to the Trump administration and say, well, they didn't take notice and comment because the Trump administration did. And they also are rather stuck with their own arguments in terms of the inconsistency of their need for time, according to them, and so forth. And not surprisingly, this is what the states are arguing to the contrary. This all arises out of an executive order from February of 2021, in which Biden asked DHS to consider, ordered DHS to consider, sorry, HHS, I got to get my HSs correct, taking down this effort. Now, DHS is involved because it involves the border, but it is a regulation under HHS authority, under the CDC. There was 14 months from the time Biden issued that executive order until the administration came out with its decision to remove the order on the border. So the argument is you had plenty of time in there to conduct notice and comment, and you chose not to do it quite intentionally. They also treat the tail end of this pandemic as if it's the beginning of a pandemic, meaning the government is doing that. And the states point out, look, there was an emergency at the beginning of the pandemic when we didn't know what we were dealing with. We had a very communicable disease, et cetera. That concern doesn't exist in taking down the border order. Again, pushing back on the good cause exception. I mentioned the fact that public comment was in fact taken at the outset of the issuance of this order and consistent with what would be appropriate under the circumstances. Issue an initial order, take public comment, and then issue a final order. And the states, of course, also pointed out the non sequitur. The the government's argument they need time to take down DHS actually argues for taking the time to take public comment. So I think the government really has handled this very badly. And this is just Ken the litigator talking. They have not managed this process well. And I do think the states are going to win this round. It will not mean that they cannot take down Title 42, the border order, but it probably will mean that courts are going to continue to order them to go back and essentially start from scratch, go through a notice and 
and comment. And for those of you who have never had the torture of going through that process, on the agency side where Mark started our, our discussion, we go through all of those comments. We go through all of them and categorize them by type and respond substantively to each argument or question or new facts raised in those comments. It is an arduous undertaking. It is an arduous undertaking. And judges have kicked regulations for failure to properly respond to those comments. It's not just a 60 days of taking in emails and then you move on your merry way. You actually have to respond to the substance of what's put forth by the public, which is why it's a considered a substantive part of the regulatory process. So very strong case here as it stands today by the states. But uh, I think much like we see with the Remain in Mexico program, the courts are not going to just force the executive branch to maintain an order if they go through a proper process and come to a reasonable conclusion that it should come down. All right, that's Ken the Litigator. Now I'm going to put on my policy hat real quick and just say, I think the last COVID thing to come down in America should be the border order. If CDC is recommending anything anywhere, then the border order should stay. As long as Americans have to give up freedom to deal with this condition, this pandemic, then the border order should stay in place. That's a policy call. It wouldn't hold up per se legally. I will say as a litigator who might argue a case, I would use circumstances that the administration is doing in other places where they're trying to force people to give up freedom or to do things like wear masks, et cetera, um, where there isn't a, a basis for it, and yet they're taking down the board order. I would certainly use that in a court hearing to embarrass the other side and enjoy doing it. And finally, the third speaker. Joe Edlow was acting director of USCIS, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, and was before that assistant chief counsel for USCIS after having spent a number of years on Capitol Hill dealing with immigration. So he has some direct experience with the litigation relating to immigration at the receiving end. So let's listen to Joe. I want Joe to talk about the third case, the top case that we're going to be talking about, which is the administration's effort to basically stop immigration enforcement altogether or uh, a non-enforcement memo from uh, Mayorkas that Texas also sued on. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit from what where Art and Ken were because they were both talking about things that the Biden administration was trying to end that the previous administration had, had started. Here, we're talking about something that the Biden administration put in, in place themselves that they are trying to defend based on litigation that came out. And, you know, I'm going to start with a, a position that might sound slightly unpopular, but it's something that, that we, you know, that I certainly lived by when I was in part of the administration, which was the administration has the prerogative to implement policy as it sees fit. We might not all agree with that policy, but certainly policy decisions are that prerogative of that administration. But when a policy is implemented, that policy has to be implemented correctly, using the correct procedure, and can't ultimately ignore the law. And when we look at the three memos that are at issue here in this non-enforcement litigation, 
which also, not to confuse it with MPP, but it's also called Texas v. U.S. This is one where clearly the administration took action that was meant to frustrate not only the the entire uh, system of, of immigration enforcement, but was done so in a way that just violated statutory law and also all the known principles of under the Administrative Procedure Act. So what we're dealing with here are three memos, the first of which was issued right on Inauguration Day, January 20th, by then Acting Secretary Bukowski at DHS. And it was had pretty much three main purposes. One was to review the policies and practices of the immigration arm of the, of the Department of Homeland Security. It was to set up these interim enforcement priorities, which pretty much mirror what we see in the final memo, essentially border security, public safety, and national security are the three main still, if you ask me right now how those were being implemented, I still couldn't really tell you, but those are what they are. And then it was my favorite and immediate suspension of all removals for 100 days, right then and there on day one of the administration. That's what the president wanted to do through the secretary. This was followed very closely on February 18th by a memo from the acting ICE director, who's still the acting ICE director, which provided interim guidance setting out the priority categories, essentially following along with what the Bukowski memo had outlined. But the important part there is that it created this presumption that if you weren't in the priority category, you were essentially outside of it and therefore not a priority for an enforcement action. You were not therefore subject to an enforcement action. This resulted, even before we get to the final agency action of September 30th, this resulted, as, as both Texas and Louisiana pointed out in this lawsuit, in multiple, numerous detainers being rescinded, the refusal of DHS and ICE to take custody of criminal aliens throughout the country, including the refusal of ICE to take custody and to actually affect final removal orders for aliens who had those removal orders issued by an immigration judge. So you've got essentially at that point lawlessness. You've got the INA, the Immigration Nationality Act, just being largely ignored by the enforcement wing of the Department of Homeland Security that is charged with carrying out the immigration enforcement activities of this country. What else they're doing in, in enforcement removal operations? I do not know. But that is what they're supposed to be doing, but this memo is preventing them from doing that. Then we have the final priority memo of September 30th. This was issued by Secretary Mayorkas, finalizing those essentially original interim priorities of border security, again, national security, public safety. But this one also creates, in that narrowed category of public safety, where mainly aggravated felonies, which is not a term of art, it's a legally defined term, takes a narrowed category of criminal aliens, but also creates a non-exhaustive list of mitigating factors that law enforcement, ICE, has to use to consider when moving forward with an enforcement action. So it's not just you've committed a crime and therefore you are being placed into removal proceedings, you're being set up for removal, whatever. We have to look at a litany of factors to determine whether you should be subject to removal proceedings. Again, that has to be reviewed by several levels of people in order for that decision to be made. It's absolutely absurd. So 
October of 2021, Texas and Louisiana file suit in the Southern District of Texas, and they allege six counts. Now, I'm so glad that Mark allowed me to speak about this case because these six counts represent not only the best that we have in terms of procedural ways to challenge the government's action, but also substantive mechanisms. Procedurally, there's the APA, right? If something is being done, you've got to file the procedural mechanisms, and and Ken talked about it. There's notice and comment. You've got to give everyone the ability to understand what's going on and let the public comment on that. And as Ken said, the government actually does review these comments and does make change at times based on those comments. Between a notice of proposed rulemaking and a final rule, there are changes that are made in response, and, and a final rule must properly include those comments and say, listen, we, we listen to, we, we understand these comments, and this is our response to those comments. There was nothing here. These are just memos. But yet, the court did find that it was a rule. An additional violation that was alleged was that the rule itself was arbitrary and capricious, which is just a fancy way for saying that the government lacked its reasoned decision-making when it decided to issue this memo, which was a rule. That they didn't consider alternatives, they didn't consider everything that would have potentially stemmed from this decision. They didn't consider anything. And of course, since there's really no administrative record with a memo, they have nothing really to come back on. The substantive claims rest on the fact that, as I mentioned before, after ICE issued its memo in February, it really stopped going after a large group of of aliens, both criminal aliens and aliens with final orders. And Texas and Louisiana seized on that, seized on that with two provisions in the INA that mandates detention and removal of aliens in certain categories. Based on that, they made substantive claims saying that the the Department of Homeland Security and the government ultimately was failing to comply with the law. And, And this is something that when the judge ultimately ruled on this case, and we're, we're only at the district court phase, so the, the judge, Judge Tipton in the Southern District, only ruled back on June 10th, so this is still fresh, found that those two claims, as well as the other two procedural claims, were all sustained based on the fact that the government did, in fact, fail to follow the law and did hold that in that case, shall actually does mean shall, which is, I know, completely shocking. but. It, it does mean shall in that case. So there are two other claims. Uh, one is a general constitutional take care that the executive shall faithfully execute the laws, take care to faithfully execute the laws. Judge felt that it was not appropriate for the judge to rule on that one, so set that one aside. There was also one involving something a little bit more specific, involving agreements that were made between Texas and the Department of Homeland Security and Louisiana and the Department of Homeland Security back at the time before the Biden administration took over. The court ultimately found that because those were entered into during the quote-unquote lame duck period, that DHS could not really be bound by something that the previous administration had entered into. So those were not upheld, but four of the six were and the judge ultimately vacated the, the final rule, which was this, this memo. And more importantly, there are a litany of memos issued by various components within the Department of Homeland Security that have referenced Secretary Mayorkas's September 30th memo that have now or should be fully 
rescinded based on the vacature of this memo. So at this point, there's a little bit of an asterisk here because yes, there's a, immediately, of course, the government took a, an appeal. The opinion was entered on uh, June 10th. The appeal was taken on June 13th. But then around June 15th, a decision came out in the Supreme Court that kind of adds an interesting spin. And, and Art touched on it briefly because Judge Barrett, Justice Barrett touched on it briefly in her, well, not briefly, she touched on her, it was her dissent in the MPP case, Texas v. U.S., regarding whether or not the court even had jurisdiction in that case to look at the MPP issue, which has to do with this, this issue of 8 U.S.C. 1252F, which is the issue of judicial review, and whether the lower courts have the ability to enjoin or restrain the operation of certain provisions of the INA. Clearly in the INA, it says that they do not. Of course, as Art said, that's always been kind of not really been followed, and the courts have been very hesitant to apply that. Well, now we have a Supreme Court case in Garland v. Alamon Gonzalez, is that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where, based on some facts involving a um, district court class action suit, the Supreme Court ultimately has now found that provision does apply and that the lower courts, other than the Supreme Court, cannot, by and large, restrict or enjoin most of the provisions involving the inadmissibility or deportability or the enforcement of, it, of immigration laws. So, as Art alluded to with Justice Barrett's dissent, her concern was that that case needed to be relooked at, reexamined based on the decision in Alamon Gonzalez. My assumption is that when the Fifth Circuit now takes a look at the non-enforcement case, they're going to look at it through the Alamon Gonzalez colored glasses. How that ultimately plays out, I don't know. Um, not really sure what's going to ultimately happen there. The whole discussion, including the Q&A, as well as a transcript, if you prefer that way, is on our site at cis.org. There'll be a link in the show notes. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Parsing Immigration Policy. I hope you'll tune in next week.